0: Welcome to UO Today, I'm Paul Pepis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. Today we're in the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art with James Harper, associate professor in the University of Oregon's Department of the History of Art and Architecture. Harper is a specialist in 16th and 17th century Italian art and the director of the University of Oregon's Interdisciplinary Museum Studies Program. He curated this exhibition, the Barberini Tapestries, Woven Monuments of Baroque Rome, which is on view through January 21st, 2018. Thanks, Jamie, for coming on the show. Oh, sure, thanks for having me. So my first question is a big one. What's special about this exhibition?
1: <laughs> What's special about this exhibition? Well, everything, of course, but, um, but let me say that uh, these tapestries that are surrounding us here um, are things that once hung in uh, some of the most splendid locations in Rome. I'm thinking about the Palazzo Barberini, the family palace of the uh, cardinal who commissioned them. But also they were loaned uh, from time to time to St. Peter's Basilica and uh, you know, numerous other locations around, around Rome. And to have something here in Eugene, Oregon, at the University of Oregon on our campus that was at St. Peter's Basilica, I think that's special. But also, <laughs> but also, I would say the scale of these things, um, the way that we've tried to install them so that you come in as a viewer and are just surrounded by these things. I think that's very special. I hope you feel that.
0: Oh yeah, it's an amazing, amazing experience to be in the space with them and to smell them too. I mean, Mm. it's a, a, the sensual experiences in every regard.
1: They they smell like old books.
0: (laughs) It's a smell I like. Um, Why were tapestries prized during the Baroque period? Well, I think uh,
1: this is a good question, and people tend today to prize them less because we think about artistic genius in a different way. But in the Baroque period, um, a tapestry series like this, would be, uh, first of all, designed by the great towering genius artist. And in that case, this was uh, Giovanni Francesco Romanelli. So you had the participation of the, you know, the the celebrity artist. But then on top of that, you know, we're just we're just going to gild the lily here. And on top of that, you've got the uh, the man hours um, that that go into uh, to weaving a tapestry series. Each of the 12 panels in this series took nearly a year to produce mm-hmm. with about six weavers working side by side, um, but also all of the work behind them, the dyers and the spinners and all of that. And so I think that the, the Baroque uh, connoisseur would look at these things and understand not just the beauty of them, but also the extraordinary investment of man hours. Um, and so I think that's another reason they're prized. And then I think there's something else that these have that paintings don't have, which is that warm materiality to them. So um, the, the inventories, when somebody inventories the goods in their palace, uh, they'll often inventory from the most valuable things down to the least valuable things. And tapestries always come first.
0: Fascinating. So- who were the Barberinis and how did they come to found their own tapestry manufactory?
1: So, the Barberini are the family of Pope Urban VIII. They're originally a Tuscan family, but when, uh, when Maffeo Barberini was elected Pope, um, uh, most of the family moved to Rome, because after all, uh, the Pope needs his relatives to help. And uh, also when your uncle is elected Pope, my advice to you, if your uncle is ever <laughs> elected Pope, get to Rome right away, because there are a lot of great opportunities for the family. Um, they uh, Rome is interesting because, it has a sort of elective monarchy. Um, Over the 17th century, there are about a dozen popes, so you've got a turnover on average about every eight years. Some popes last only two and a half years, other popes like Urban VIII last 21 years. But the point is that with this elective monarchy, you have family after family kind of catapulted to the very height of power and prestige and all the splendor that goes with it, and this is what happened to the Barberini. When Urban VIII was elected in 1623, they, uh, they started to, the families started to build, um, build things, build churches, palaces, chapels, um, and, uh, and decorate those palaces with, uh, with collections of art, uh, ancient art and modern art. Um, and the cardinal nephew, Cardinal Francesco Barberini, who was the, uh, the, Pope's, uh, the Pope's sidekick, sort of his prime minister, secretary of state, gatekeeper, hatchet man, chief of staff, he, the cardinal nephew did all those things. And this cardinal nephew, Cardinal Francesco Barberini, was, uh, was a great patron of art. He understood art a lot. Uh, art and also music and, uh, and philosophy, and he was a writer himself. Uh, he, he, but he also understood that there was a competition between his own family and all of those other papal families who were left over from prior pontificates. And let me also say in the future, all the future papal families who are coming down the road. And so when he decided to found a tapestry workshop, in the late 1620s, um, it was, uh, I think, a really aggressive act of competition. Nobody else in Rome had a tapestry manufactory, and uh, most tapestry manufacture took place in uh, the Netherlands and northeastern France. And when the cardinal did this, the only other fine tapestry manufactory south of the Alps was the Medici tapestry manufactory in Florence. And I mean, that's the Medici, right? Mm -hmm. Who are moreover, you know, rulers. They rule like kings as the grand Dukes of Tuscany. So Cardinal Barberini founds this tapestry workshop and basically uh, beats everybody else who who couldn't even compete in that game. And it was a kind of quasi-royal act of, uh, of patronage.
0: So what sets the Life of Christ series apart from the other tapestries that come out of their workshop?
1: Right, uh, there are seven tapestry series that come out of the Barberini Tapestry Workshop. I would say the Life of Christ, um, this is a sounds like a dull answer, but it's the most generic, mm. right? Mm. Um, the, the, uh, some of the tapestries that come out of the tapestry works are very, very personal. Um, nice. There's a series that follows this one immediately after the Life of Christ, they weave a life of Apollo, stories of Apollo. In which Apollo is actually a stand-in for Cardinal Francesco Barberini, the patron. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one, the last series, and the grandest series that they wove was the um, was the life of Pope Urban VIII. and it took I call it perfect history. It took the history of his pontificate and drew forth the um, you know the best episodes and suppressed the worst episodes, <laughs> and then took the best episodes and you know through inclusions and omissions uh, made them even better Uh, so these are very very deeply personal ones this one on the other hand, tells a kind of universally applicable story, which is the life of Christ. Yes, there are Barberini, um, Barberini-specific motifs in the borders. You've got the coats of arms. You've got uh, symbols of the family in the borders. And you also do have some references to things in the Barberini family collections. The crucifixion right over there, for instance, is a copy of the altarpiece of the family chapel in the Palazzo Barberini. Um, but, to step back, so there are things that are personal about this series, but I would say it, it stands apart from the others in, in that it is, it is, it is uh, let, let me say, again, generic, universally applicable. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was what this assignment called for, because this was a series that did a lot of work. Around the city, the cardinal would loan this out, uh, would loan it to a church for its feast day. I mentioned earlier that it would be loaned to St. Peter's Basilica for the feasts of St. Peter, uh, the feast of St. Peter and Paul, uh, or for the coronation of new popes. And it was, um, it was a kind of workhorse of the family's tapestry loan program. And I think, in in that sense, the um, the the relatively conservative imagery here uh, suited
0: suited the purpose very well. So you mentioned the borders. Tell us about the borders. Some mm. of the significance of the motifs that are in the borders.
1: Okay. Well, the borders um, have in. They, they're, they're, they're the fiction is that they imitate. Uh, the forms of very, very fancy wooden frames, gilt wooden frames, uh, with little stucco, uh, stucco decorations um, uh, all uh, intertwined, and you've got uh, you've got in each corner the Barberini coat of arms, which is three Bs in gold on a field of blue. That's surrounded by a, a, a tight wreath of laurel, and the laurel was another symbol of the family. They, uh, the cardinal liked to think of himself as a new Apollo. Um, he put uh, the sun as a motif all around the palace, as did his uncle the pope. So the laurel, uh, connecting them to this myth of Apollo, also appears again in the, uh, the twisting branches of laurel that wrap uh, all, all around the circumference of the frame. And then there are cartouches with the cardinal virtues, faith, hope, and charity, um, that uh, are at left, right, and bottom. And then in the very top, you've got, uh, you've got one of two different uh, Barberini imprese. And an impresa is a sort of, uh, it's, it's kind of like a logo. It's a visual, um, a visual motif, often accompanied by a very brief inscription. And uh, here we have two different types one is uh, the three bees running a plow, which is a really weird one to us today. But in 17th century Rome, the Cardinal Barberini's contemporaries would have recognized this as, uh, as one of his favorite symbols. And that comes from an ancient Roman gem. I think it was an onyx or an agate uh, in his collection. Mm-hmm on which was carved by, I think, a first century craftsman, this little image of three bees running a plow. And the Cardinal Barberini loved this thing because it was three bees. And so he, uh, he bought it and he displayed it to his special guests. And he used to tell them that these three bees are like me and my two brothers. He had another brother who was also a cardinal and a brother who was a prince and a general of the church. He said, it's just like us. We three are all kind of harnessed together, working for the good of Rome. So yeah, that, in, in that sense, you know, every time that motif appears, it, it sounds that kind of forcefully positive message of, uh, of the family doing good things for the city and for the world. And then the other thing that you see in its place um, on some of the tapestries is the rising sun. And this is another favorite motif, um, often accompanied, although it's not in the tapestries, uh, it appears without the inscription, but often accompanied with the inscription in Latin, aleusque et idem, which means um, different and yet the same. And just like the sun which rises every day, different and yet it's still the same sun, so the Barberini dynasty will keep producing more generations of, uh, you know, new cardinals and new princes who are different but are the same. So it expresses this idea of dynastic continuity.
0: Hmm. So for the majority of the the tapestries are scenes that are canonical scenes from the life of Christ. So, Mm -hmm. Annunciation, the nativity, behind us is uh, the agony in the garden, the crucifixion, the consignment of the keys, but the largest tapestry is of a map. Mm Explain why.
1: <laughs> well, there, there are actually two map tapestries in this. The first one is the rest on the flight into Egypt, where you have a standard narrative scene in the foreground: the Holy Family sitting on this high ridge, resting. They're halfway from uh, from uh, from Israel into Egypt, and they're looking down across the Sinai Peninsula. And there is Egypt off in the distance, and there the landscape morphs into a map, and we have. Um, what I like to call the impossible view. It's as if you're standing on a ridge looking out over it, but you would never perceive all of that at once, you know, from the cataracts of the Nile to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and what that map does is it shows you the places where the Holy Family are believed to have gone during their, uh, during their time as refugees in Egypt. And, uh, and so you can, in a way, Follow them. There's there's not a dotted line showing the route. And in fact, the route is nobody entirely agrees yeah. on which route they <laughs> took or anything like that. But there are a lot of the key sites called out with little labels on it. Then the final uh, uh, tapestry in this series is, is, as you say, the largest, 19 feet wide, and, um, and it depicts the, uh, a map of the Holy Land as if seen from, you know, kind of helicopter far above Cyprus. You know, you're over the Mediterranean Sea looking to the east. And um, on that map, I think there are about 175 sites labeled. Um, I know because I I went in there and had to <laughs> had to explain each one of them to myself, if not to uh, everybody else, and. Um, why, you know, why would somebody have a map like that? Well, I think that there is a tradition of uh, what I call armchair pilgrimage or virtual pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole section of the exhibition in the next gallery over that, uh, in which I've assembled a group of maps of the Holy Land, the kind of thing that people would, would use. They'd pull them out. Sometimes they'd be reading their Bible and finding things on the map, um, you know, as a, as a kind of aid to imagining uh, the life of Christ or even let's speak more broadly scripture as a whole Old Testament New Testament um, and sometimes yeah so so you've got you've you've got these these things that enable you to imagine something of uh, the realness of scripture if you can place it on a map then it must you know it, it, it becomes it becomes more vivid and more real um, There's also, I think, with maps always this, uh, you you hold a map in your hand and you, in a way, you sort of possess something, you possess a connection to it, and even a little bit of a command of it, even if the command is just knowledge and not actual political command. Um, And I imagine uh, the Cardinal Barberini, Um, in a gallery uh, or, you know, a grand room in his palace, hung with all these tapestries and strolling over and standing in front of the map of the Holy Land and pointing out the different places where all of these things happened. Um, And so in a way, it's a kind of guide to the series. Although of course, as I said, there are 175 different uh, places called out on it. So it's, it's a guide to a whole kind of layered, imagined Holy Land. Some of the places on it are, are, are were even to the you know, to the old testament people uh prehistory hmm. and uh, so there are legends on the map there's things that uh, that are scriptural there are also things that are uh, Byzantine monasteries and crusader forts and uh, so it is um, it's, it's it's kind of like taking the mind and spreading it out on the map. if <laughs> That's not too gross an analogy. We are filming, after all, on Halloween. <laughs> um, and the city of Jerusalem appears in the middle of the map in its ancient first century form, the Jerusalem that Christ would have known. And let me say, in the form that the map makers believed to be the form that Christ would have known. Um, and then, down in the cartouche at the bottom, um, there is a map of modern Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that a pilgrim in the in the sixteenth or seventeenth century might have encountered. So I think right there, that juxtaposition of past and present, it's all it's all kind of there in the map, and you shimmer between eras in it.
0: So how did these tapestries end up at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City? Well, they uh, the tapestries were,
1: in the possession of the Barberini family. The Cardinal Barberini commissioned them um, and they were woven in the 1640s and 50s. Uh, For about another 75 years or so, they were used uh, fairly frequently. Um, But then Grand Manor Baroque tapestry fell from style in the mid 18th century. And I think that these spent a certain amount of time in the storerooms uh, Mm -hmm. after that. Meanwhile, in America, you have in the 19th century this growth of a new kind of plutocratic class um, in what uh, writers have called the Gilded Age, and these uh, new, uh, new people with new fortunes wanted to wanted to cast themselves as kind of the new medici and the new barberini and their um their people like the vanderbilts and the hearsts built these great european style palaces and filled them with uh with the decorative arts and paintings that they bought in europe and uh and displayed in america so with against that whole context there's this guy charles mather folk who is a um an American who had, a Pennsylvania guy who'd grown very wealthy in the wool trade. Mm -hmm. So he's interested in textiles and he retired early and uh, decided to remake himself as a scholar of tapestry. Mm. So he goes to Europe, he, uh, you know, there's, no, there's, no, there's no school where you can go to become a scholar of tapestry, but he goes around and he meets people and he has these conversations and he sees collections and he keeps his notes and uh, he starts buying tapestry. Um, and the, the, he goes to the Prince of the Barberini um, and he says, I would like to buy a series from you and the prince says it's not for sale I'm the prince of the Barberini and (laughs) Charles Matherfolk though was persistent and finally the prince said okay here's the deal Um, I will sell you that series that you want but you have to take hundred and (laughs) forty tapestries so this guy in a stroke he wrote a check and took hundred and forty tapestries and in a stroke he became not just a collector but also a dealer because he now had more tapestry than even he knew what to do with so he brings the, uh, the Barberini tapestries back to America and he has a, uh, a grand townhouse on Embassy Row in Washington, D.C., where he entertains people. And he's got a tapestry room, a sort of ballroom, that is specifically built for hanging giant tapestry. And he shows his neighbors and friends and people in his social circles how to live with tapestry. And by the way, you know, you can buy some of these if you like. Well, there was a lady um, in New York, Elizabeth Underhill Coles, who Uh, who bought a set from Charles Mather Folk, not for herself, even though she did have a collection, but she wanted to give it to the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, the Episcopal Cathedral, that was just in the planning stages um, at at this moment. And the moment we're talking about is 1889, 1890. And uh, so in 1891, the Bishop of New York breaks ground on the new cathedral um, and one of the first gifts that he has uh, to furnish the, 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 st- the still unfinished cathedral, one of the first gifts he has is this series. And. Uh, it, uh, when the cathedral was consecrated in 1911, they hung them and I've got to say, um, even though they are Baroque and it is Gothic, uh, Gothic revival, um, the, the sort of richness and splendor of it make a great compliment to, uh, to the building.
0: So tell us what happens to them while they're there at this cathedral. I mean, we have 10 of them here. Right. Mm-hmm. Why only 10?
1: Why only 10? Oh, Paul, oh, Paul. <laughs> the, uh, so the tapest... Tappas- the- the cathedral um, is not a museum, um, it is a house of worship, and uh, they display these as, as enhancements to, to worship, and, and they've got an interesting collection too. I mean, they've got a Keith Haring uh, Last Judgment altarpiece, so everything from Baroque tapestries to, to Keith Haring and uh, even things beyond, but, uh, but the tapestries were hanging on a partition wall Uh, in December 2001, um, a partition wall behind which was the gift shop, the gift shop. And um, there was an electrical fire that started in the middle of the night in the gift shop and uh, uh, the fire spread rapidly and uh, the wooden partition wall burned and uh, a lot of other things burned as well. And by the time the fire department got the fire put out, uh, two of the Barberini tapestries had been irreparably damaged. Um, there were others that, uh, that took some smoke, and, uh, but that's, that's something that you can clean off. But, uh, but the Last Supper and the Resurrection were both uh, burned so severely that they lost about 40% of the, of the, of the material of them. And uh, so, I mean, it just goes to show you that even, you know, even today, we, uh, you know, the, the, the survival of things is never guaranteed. Um, we did debate, my collaborator on this exhibition, Marlene Eidelheit, who's the uh, chief conservator and director of the Textile Conservation Lab at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And the cathedral has a huge collection of textiles and they have set up a sort of semi-independent operation the textile conservation lab which is one of the best in the country uh, started to take care of these things but they also take in work from various uh, museums and private collections Um, the Marlene Eidelheit the director and I uh, debated a bit about how to represent the tapestries that had burned we didn't want to uh, to show you know, one of these great big 15 and a half foot things half destroyed because that somehow, we we didn't want the tragedy and I mean, they, they are they're shocking looking things when you see them in their destroyed state. We didn't want the tragedy to be uh, to be so present. We didn't want it to outshine the, uh, the glory of these things that have survived. and that now, after a 25 year conservation campaign that was slightly interrupted by the fire, but a major conservation campaign, they're looking they're looking better, I feel, than any time they have mm-hmm. since the seventeenth century. So we didn't want to outshine these with with the gloomy disaster, but we also felt we needed to, to represent it. And so in the case in the middle of the gallery here, you'll see a fragment that's about this big and um, and that shows the head of st. John the evangelist from the Last Supper and it's a very beautiful kind of haunting object here's this this beautiful face and the flowing hair uh, just kind of emerging out of the singed material and the burned edge Um, so yeah that's that's the kind of thing that probably never would have happened in a museum but to circle back to your initial question, um, at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, it's not a museum and these live in a different way. And
0: uh, So tell us about the symposium that you've organized to accompany the, the exhibit.
1: Well, we have uh, coming up in a couple of weeks, the dates are November 16th and 17th, um, a symposium on uh, the Barberini and 17th century tapestry. We've invited uh, some of the best people in the world for this, and I'm I'm very pleased to say that nobody turned down our invitation. This is really nice. Um, the 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 tapestry the world of tapestry scholars is a very um, you know is a very mutually supportive world. Let me say, and so we've got. Uh, We've got tom campbell who uh, has just recently stepped down from being director of the metropolitan museum of art in new york he will chair uh, one of our sessions we've got uh, a keynote address from frederick hammond who is the author of a major book on uh, the barberini and music and spectacle in rome and he'll be setting these in the context of this sort of overall display right because nowadays we tend to consider things medium by medium, but in the time of the Barberini, these were part of a, of a multimedia show in a sense. We have uh, Konrad Brossens coming from, uh, from Belgium. We have um, uh, Charissa Bramer David, who's the chief curator of uh, tapestries at the, uh, at the Getty. Um, we've got Lisa Pahn who's a professor at uh, SMU who is collaborating with an acoustic scientist mm-hmm. and measuring the acoustic properties of tapestry and testing spaces with and without them. And she's actually, she's actually presenting uh, some new data including her measurements of the acoustics of the cathedral when we hung all of these mm-hmm. uh, for our exhibition when it was there uh, last, uh, last spring and early summer. Um, and I'm sure I'm forgetting one or two, but uh, that, that gives you that gives you the sense of of the scope of things and uh, and free and, and open to the public. Free and open to the public, <laughs> and it's going to be it's going to be very exciting. And there's also on the Thursday evening, right prior to the uh, to the keynote address, there is a concert where uh, there will be a uh, lutenist. Playing some of the music that was composed by Cardinal Francesco Barberini's in-house composer. Hmm. Uh, so, all you know, I think there will be there will be something for every something for everyone, and great. I would urge all
0: your audience to come. So we only have a, a minute or so left. Last question. Why is it important for a university to host an exhibit like this? Why is that a good thing for a university to do?
1: Well, um, the, that, it seems so obvious to me, but let me try to <laughs> articulate it. Um, I think that uh, what, what we do here at the University of Oregon is that we represent the world, right? The, the world, all the disciplines, all the periods, um, just everything out there, we represent that to our students, and also I would say uh, to our community beyond our students, but primarily, first the first wave is towards our students, and then and then it extends. And um, the here, what what we're showing in this gallery is something that is not only of a sort of great historical interest, but also something that is of experiential interest. I think that. Um, you know those those of us who you know, who've had the opportunity to live in Europe among these kind of objects it's less surprising right you know we we know what it is to walk into a room and be entirely surrounded by art, whether it's a tapestry series or a fresco cycle or a ceiling um, but I think that here we're delivering this experience to our students um, and that's and I think that's 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 just one example of of hundreds of things that we're doing here in this museum and here on this campus um, every day.
0: Well, that's a great place to end our interview. Thank you, Jamie, for uh, talking with us today. I would urge everyone to come and see this amazing exhibit, come to the symposium, buy a copy of the book. It's all great. Um, I've been speaking with James Harper, associate professor in the University of Oregon's Department of the History of Art and Architecture He curated the Barberini Tapestries, Woven Monuments of Baroque Rome, on view at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art through January 21st, 2018. Thanks so much for watching.